If you're visiting with us today, we have been doing a series in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles here this morning, uh, you can just take them out right now. Otherwise, if you want to use an iPhone or, or an iPad uh, or whatever you may have to read your Bible on, uh, then go ahead and take it out and you can head over to the book of John, chapter number three. And we've been doing this series um, in the Gospel of John. For those of you visiting, uh, we're in John chapter number three, and I'm going to give you a real quick uh, recap of what we have seen uh, in the book of John so far. We know that John was just an ordinary fisherman. He was just an ordinary guy who went about his family business. He was fishing with his brother. He was fishing with his dad. And Jesus walks into his life. Jesus comes walking along the beach while he's mending his nets. And Jesus goes up to John and his brother James, and he says to them, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And whenever Jesus says that to us, because if you're here this morning, either Jesus has or he is about to say those same words to you. He's coming to you and he's saying, come and follow me. What does that mean when we follow Jesus? First and foremost, it means this, come and know me. Jesus wants us to know him. He wants us to know his heart, his love, his grace, the fullness, the truth of who God is. And so Jesus walks up to this ordinary fisherman called John and he says, John, come, I want you to know me. And John goes on this journey with Jesus for three years. He walks with Jesus and his eyes open up so much so that John realizes that before he knew Jesus, he was completely blind. He knew nothing about anything regarding the truth, regarding the heart of God, regarding the life that God has called us to until he saw Jesus in this way. And so he even writes about Jesus in this way. He says that in him was the, was the life, the light, and the light was the life of men. In Jesus was the light, and those who sat in darkness have seen a great light. This is what happens when we see Jesus. And that's why John writes this book. He says right at the end in John 20, I've written this so that you may know Jesus, so that you may believe, and in believing have eternal life. Essentially, he's painting this picture for us of what Jesus looks like and who Jesus is. It's kind of like a puzzle piece. I used this analogy last week. I had uh, my son's Ninja Turtle puzzle out here. And, uh, and I said that a lot of people, they pick up the Bible and they open it up for their daily verse. If this is you, don't move around too much or look around. We won't know. Uh, but but the, he opens up, we open up our Bibles and we want to just pull out a verse. Like, speak to me, Jesus. Have you ever done the flip method? You know, you need a word from God and you just like flip it open and hope that God would speak to you. And then it's something about, you know, a crown and, and a princess and a thing. And you're like, mm-mm. Okay, not, not, not today. It didn't work today. Uh, but we kind of do that. And a lot of people read the Bible and study the Bible and even preach the Bible like pieces of a puzzle where they pull out one piece and then they go, well, this scripture says this. So yes, I take that. And here's a story about what Jesus did at the wedding in Cana. Okay, I take that. And here's a story about Jesus clearing out the temple. Okay, I take that. Here's a, here's a story about the Good Samaritan. Okay, I'll try my best to do that. And what happens is it's like seeing a puzzle piece by piece, but never actually putting it together. And that's not how God wants us to understand the Bible. He wants us to see the grand picture. He wants us to see this grand narrative of redemption, of who Jesus is, how he represented the heart of God and what he came to do for us. And so John is actually painting this beautiful picture of who Jesus is, and we get to go along the journey with him. So what are some of the puzzle pieces that we've seen so far? In John chapter number one, he starts off, he doesn't want to wait to let you know who Jesus is. First verse, in the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything that was made was made through Him. So Jesus, first puzzle piece, is the creator of heaven and earth. He was there in the beginning. He's uncreated. He's eternal. He is, he is God. Jesus is God. And then he says, a few verses later in verse 14, he says, and this word, this truth of God, this person, this son of God became flesh. He became like one of us and we beheld his glory as the only son of God, full of grace and truth. And he multiplied to us grace upon grace. And so he shows how Jesus revealed the heart of God to us in coming to this earth and being wrapped up and, 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 and completely saturated with the truth and the grace of God. And we, we got to see God. We got to know God by seeing him through this. And then we go into John chapter number two, which is what we looked at last week. By the way, all, the, all of these messages are online on soundcloud.com. You can just search Anchor Joburg. It's also on our website. You can go and catch up if you would like to hear the rest of the messages. But then he goes into this, this, uh, these two stories in John chapter number two, where number one, Jesus tells us that he, uh, the, uh, John tells us that Jesus was at a wedding in Cana. And this wedding was on the third day. No other context for it, just the third day there was a wedding. And at that wedding, Jesus takes the water that is filling, that's filled to the brim in these stone jars that were used for the Jewish rites of purification, and he turns it into wine. And this tells us, it's not just a, a, a party trick, because when you read that, you're like, I would love to be able to do that at the next wedding I attend, just blow the party up. That's not what Jesus went there to do. He's actually saying something. The Spirit had orchestrated it in that way, that John could show us, this is what Jesus came to do. He's God, he became flesh, and this is what he came to do. What did he come to do? He came to take us from the law, where we work hard by cleansing ourselves with water on the outside, washing our hands and going through the rites of purification, trying to make ourselves clean. Jesus said, I'm putting a stop to that. I'm turning the water into wine. From now on, you will be cleansed, not from the outside, but from the inside, from the heart of sin. I'm dealing with the heart of sin and I'm going to cleanse you from the inside out by my blood. He took us from water to wine. The very next thing Jesus does is he marches into the temple and he drives out every single sacrifice because he declares, I am the only sacrifice. The, the blood of lambs and goats like they used to use in the Old Testament will no longer be the sacrifice for your sins. I have declared that the house of God is no longer a house of trade. Did you know that when you come to church on a Sunday morning, you're not here to make a transaction with God? It's subtle, but that's what we do. We come here to transact with God. God, I'll give you my faith. I'll give you my time. I'll give you my money. And then in return, you can bless me in this way and do this and hopefully I'll be saved. No, there's no transaction. It's a free gift of God's grace. And that's what Jesus declares. Come, my, my, my God's house, my Father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations to connect with God freely and openly. So that's John chapter number two. Jesus is God. He came to be amongst us and he changed the game of how we relate to God. And then today, uh, with our baptisms that we'll be doing uh, in a moment, I'll let the guys who are getting baptized today, I think we've got over 20 people that wanna be baptized today. Uh, it was just so awesome. We sat in the beginning of the year, and we said, how many people would we like to reach and, and see baptized? And we were trying to be realistic, and we said, okay, let's do 50 people. If we can baptize 50 people in 2016, that would be amazing. And today we're already covering half of that, just with the amount of people that God has been touching and speaking to, which is just uh, so, so good.
Um, but today we're going to John 3, where Jesus now shows how do we receive that grace? How do we become recipients of that grace? He's changed the game. How do we become a part of it? How do we receive what Jesus has done for us? And so we're going to go to John chapter number three. It tells the story about a Pharisee called Nicodemus who comes and asks Jesus this question at night. It's secret. I can just imagine uh, uh, um, Nicodemus with kind of a cloak and a hoodie and a whole thing going on, and he doesn't want to be seen, and he walks up to Jesus quietly, and he goes, hey, I need to ask you some questions. So let's go to John chapter number three and verse one. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So now the word is spread about what Jesus has already done. And Nicodemus is absolutely intrigued. He wants to know. He goes, we know that you're from God because nobody could be doing what you do unless God was with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see. You cannot even perceive the kingdom of God. I said this a few weeks ago that if you're making assertions about God without knowing Jesus, you speak in ignorance. You don't know God until you know Jesus. You haven't seen God until you've seen Jesus. And he, and, and, and he comes and goes, we know that you're from God. And Jesus says, you know nothing, John Snow. No, he didn't say that. He said, you know nothing, Nicodemus. Um, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, he says it again, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, which is the title of my message this morning, born of water and the spirit, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it, comes, where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus's words, not our words, Jesus's words. If you wanna see the kingdom of God, if you wanna know who God is, if you wanna enter into this great grace that God has made available to all people, you must be born again. And for a few moments this morning, I want to explore a little bit what, about what that actually means to all of us. So let's, let's just go ahead and pray, and then we'll get stuck into this. Jesus, we thank you so much this morning, Jesus, that we're not out here trying to talk about you as if you're not here or, or, or make certain points about your truth without your presence, Jesus. We thank you that you are present here with us right now, that your spirit is here to speak to our hearts, to convict, to change, to, to save, to rescue. We thank you, Jesus, that wherever we walk in false perceptions of you and and misunderstandings, Lord God, or where we do not see the fullness, we pray that our eyes would open up, that that the, the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, Jesus. We pray that we would perceive more of who you are and what you have done for us and as a result, who we are in Christ. We thank you for this new identity, this new life, this new journey that we have, that we're all welcomed into by the grace of God. And we give you all the glory and the praise and the honor for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the important thing to understand about Nicodemus is that he has got all of the religion in the world. 
Nicodemus is a religious leader and one of the leader of the Jews. Nicodemus has been going to the synagogue since he was a little boy. Nicodemus has learned every scripture that there was in the Old Testament. Nicodemus has gone through the rites of purification, all of the ceremonial uh, rites that he went through, and he is now actually operating as a teacher of others, as a Pharisee and a purveyor of the law. He lived by the Talmud and, and, and according to all the interpretations of the law in the Old Testament, and, and yet Nicodemus is thirsty for more. Yet Nicodemus is hungry to see a true move of God. You see, you can be in church all of your life. You can go to Sunday school, to Sunday school, to Sunday school. From, from there, move on to church, to youth ministry, to, to adult ministry. You can serve, you can sing in a band, you can worship, you can do absolutely everything. But yet religion cannot fulfill you. It's not about a program. Anchor Church is not a program. And what we're not asking you to do is drop the system that you had to save yourself in the world and adopt just another system to save yourself inside here. Nicodemus is the most religious guy you can get and he is hungry for more. Where's the truth in it? Where's the substance in it? I don't know why, but whenever I think about substance, I think of a block of cheese. It just feels dense and substantial. And, and can you just take a block of cheese out of the fridge and take a bite out of it? That's, he wants that kind of, he wants a bite out of truth, Nicodemus. He wants something that fulfills him, that goes, this is truly it. I've been following the law. I've been trying to save myself. I've been going to the temple. I've been paying my tithes. I've been doing everything I need to do, but I'm hungry. I'm thirsty for more. So much so that even though Jesus had been preaching and saying a bunch of crazy things and the Pharisees had already labeled him as a heretic and, and as a, a blasphemer, as a drunkard. I mean, all these things that they were saying, he comes eating and drinking, he's a drunkard, he's, you know, he's got demons, he's, you know, he's not from God. Nicodemus risks his career under the cover of darkness because he's hungry for some truth. I don't know if you've ever felt that way in your life where you just okay, I've got the career, I'm married, I've got kids, I've, I've got everything that I thought would make me happy, but I'm still just hungry for that, mm, that substance, that thing that fulfills me, that gives me life. And Jesus comes along and he starts just in this way that only Jesus could. He just starts making declarations about who, who the Father is, about who God is, about, about what the truth is. And, and, and Nicodemus recognizes something in here that he knows that he needs to find out more about. And so he goes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, I know that you are a teacher from God because you've, these signs, nobody can do these things unless God was with them. And Jesus' response is a little bit off. It seems a little bit surprising the way that Jesus Responds and, and we, we tend to rush through scripture sometimes. And we don't pick up, we kind of go, that was weird, but we just skip over it and we kind of ignore it. We go to the next verse. I mean, if it was me, I would go something like, or I would have said something like, You've spoken truthfully, or I'm glad you recognized, or thanks, dude, you're awesome. You know, I would have been happy that he recognized that I was from God. Jesus says something a little bit different, he doesn't even acknowledge fully what Nicodemus is saying, but instead he says this, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, which is 
kind of Jesus turning around, looking at Nicodemus and going, listen to me. I'm about to tell you the truth, so make sure that you're listening. I, I, want, I want you to know that this is the truth. And he responds by saying, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus doesn't understand this, so Jesus says, I'm gonna, listen to me, I'm gonna tell you again, unless you are born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here's what Jesus was saying. You cannot know me religiously. You cannot know me through any self-effort, any system, any program through which you might be attempting to make yourself right with God. I'm not religiously knowable, is what Jesus is saying. You cannot follow Jesus theoretically or philosophically. You cannot adopt the idea of Jesus and think that that's gonna change your life. Where Jesus becomes like those little Hewlett sugar packets that you pick up and you read the message and you think, oh, so good, I'm gonna live this. Man, great to be reminded, let me have my coffee. Five minutes later, you have forgotten about it. It doesn't change your life because it doesn't have the power to change your life. You don't have the power to change your life. I don't have the power to change my life. Jesus goes, you need more than religion. You need more than an idea. You even need more than a belief in God. I come across that belief often in the city. People who believe that there is a God, they might even believe that his name is Jesus, but their lives remain unchanged because you cannot embrace the fullness of God through a religious mindset. This is not an idea. It's not a philosophy. In other words, what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus by his response is he was saying, it's not enough for you to believe that I am a good teacher sent from God. It's not enough for you to adopt my teachings, which is what I thought it was all about. I picked up the Bible and every day I was like, what should I do? What should I do? Let me see what this next verse says. It's not enough to try and follow in Jesus' steps like, well, step one, step two, step three, because then ultimately you have turned the gospel into a recipe that doesn't even require the presence of God. You've turned it into a formula. You've turned it into another self-help plan. Jesus goes, it's not enough for you to believe that I am sent from God or a good teacher. If you wanna know God, if you wanna see God, if you wanna enter into the kingdom, what you need is to be born again. You see, that's the thing that Jesus came to do, to give us new life. Jesus didn't come to take us from being bad to good. A lot of people see the Bible as let's go from bad to good. The Bible is not about taking bad people and making them good. The Bible is about taking dead people and making them alive. It's new life that he came for, not a 12-step plan. Does that make sense this morning? That's what Jesus came to do. Our message to the city is not come and try and be better with us. We're better. We're a little bit better. Come and be better with us. 
No, our message to the city is that we are as imperfect and flawed and, 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 and uh, sinful as anybody else without the presence of Jesus. But we have found new life in Christ. And that same life, that same grace, that same truth is available to you. So it's not a recipe, it's not a diet, it's not a self-help program. That's why Jesus says, anybody that's born of the Spirit, it's like the wind. It's like the wind that blows. Thank you, Jesus. He will confirm his words with signs and wonders. Let's rip through three plugs and some duct tape, which is pretty amazing. Thanks, guys. But the wind blows. The wind blows and Jesus says, you don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it's going. In other words, this is not something that you can predict or mold or fashion with your own hands. Who's ever tried to fashion the wind? to grab a, take a hold of the wind and, and tell it where it should blow or what it should do. We cannot do that. All that we can do is move with the wind, is put up our sails and be moved by the wind. And Jesus says, anybody that's born of the Spirit, you cannot systemize this. Does that make sense this morning? You cannot systemize this. It's like the wind that blows. Thanks so much, guys, for getting that sorted out. It's a supernatural act of God. Real quick, a couple of things that our faith is not, all right? I'm just gonna run through these real quick. Number one, our faith is not, the Christian faith is not a moral code. The Bible does have morals in it and morals are good and we live uh, with you know, morality in our lives. It's, a, it's an important part of our lives. But the Bible is not a book about morals. It's a book that's ultimately about how God saved his people through the sacrifice of Jesus. In other words, the Bible is about Jesus. It's about the gospel. And only by accepting Jesus can we begin to live a life that is truly moral. So you, you, right believing produces right living, Charles Spurgeon said. Right living doesn't produce right believing. We've got to get that order right. So the, our faith is not a moral code. It's the story of what God did through his son to save humanity. It's not a fan club. We didn't get together here this morning because we just love the teachings of Jesus like some people love the teachings of other uh, leaders that have gone before and get together and start a little fan club. We don't support Jesus and like Jesus the way that we like our favorite band or like uh, our favorite sports team. This is not a fan club about someone who once lived. We don't gather on Sundays to reminisce about his life. It's not a philosophical society. Our faith and our church is not a philosophical society where we come together to listen to some insightful ramblings of human thought where we can, we can try and gain perspective on society or anthropological uh, insight on, on what's happening in our world. That's not why we're here. We're not here to debate philosophy. It's not a social club either. It's not first and foremost just a place to hang out or even to practice philanthropy and, and be out in the city doing great things. We're doing that. But that's not what we here to, what we gathered for. And it's certainly not a religion. As far as religion is an attempt by us as human beings to reconcile ourselves with God. Jesus, in fact, as we saw last week, Robert Capon, in those powerful words we read last week, he says, in fact, Jesus came 
to declare the end of religion, the end of man's striving to be right with God and the beginning of this new covenant of grace where instead of man going like Jesus went at the wedding of Cana, instead of the people going to the water, the water was drawn out. Jesus came to us. God became flesh. The creator of heaven and earth met with us in our sin and called us to to find our, our rest, our peace, and our righteousness in him. So our faith is not in a program. It's not in a moral code. It's not in a process. It's in a person. And his name is Jesus. And that's why the very first value that we wrote down that we have as a church, as Anchor Church, is it is all about Jesus. And I used to say that without living it. For years, I preached it without living it. Because it's, it sounds great, but you know that even by saying it's all about Jesus, you could be saying that to make it all about you. The heart is so deceptive. It's where we get to that moment where we stop striving And we go, okay, Jesus, save me. I need a savior. I need a savior. And that's what Jesus encourages us to do. So Nicodemus doesn't quite understand this. John 3 verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? How can this be? Jesus answered, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. That must have been a low blow for Nicodemus. I mean, Jesus is really striking at the heart here. He's like, you are teaching an entire nation about religion and about righteousness and about God, yet you do not know what it means to be born again in Christ. You, you don't understand the prophecies. You don't understand what Moses was talking about. You don't understand what Isaiah was talking about. You don't understand what, what all of the prophets and the law was pointing to. And it's Jesus. How can you not recognize the Messiah when he stands in front of you? You can be so religiously uh, uh, conditioned and, and learned and, and well-read, etc., and yet you can miss the gospel. Are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you don't get this? You don't understand this? Two chapters later in John 5, Jesus again speaking to the Pharisees. Now watch this. He says, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you will find life. But it's these scriptures that testify about me. You see, there comes a point where you stop reading your Bible to find out about you and about what you're supposed to try and do in your own strength. And you start reading it to find out about who Jesus is and about who you are in Jesus. There comes a point where you're less conscious about yourself and more conscious about Jesus. Jesus says, you can read this all that you want. You think you're gonna find life. No, the life is in me. That's what this book testifies about. It testifies about me. So Nicodemus is still struggling here. <laughs> he still doesn't quite get it. He's still going, okay, but now, please, I, I, just be patient. It's late at night. I haven't slept. Uh, you know, can you, can you just explain it to me one more time? And Jesus uses a picture from the Old Testament to help Nicodemus understand 
what it is that he came to do and how people receive Jesus and, and, and enter into this new life that God has for them. In John 3 verse 14, it says, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever puts their faith in what Jesus has done when he was lifted up on the cross will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen to this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus didn't come here to condemn us. He came to save us. Just like Moses who lifted the serpent in the wilderness. Has anybody here ever come across a live snake? Particularly a dangerous one. Right, it's like the worst nightmare of millions of people worldwide, right? Just, just like, you know, some people fear that a little bit less only than like public speaking. That's like the only thing that trumps it. Um, and people are genuinely afraid of snakes, spiders, all of those things. I don't know if you saw, there was a video recently on YouTube of a lady that there was a spider in her car on the highway and she just got out of her car. She just got out of a car and walked away and the video shows the car like veering over the highway, over the, the barrier, off into oncoming traffic, hits a car, f- flies into the trees, you know, and just because there was a spider in the car and, and someone commented on it, it was like, seems like a reasonable response, you know, spider in my car, just let it go, man, just let it go, I don't need that car. Um, and, and, and that's how people feel about snakes as well. I remember uh, on holiday as uh, a teenager, we had this farm out in a little town called Stolbar, and there were a lot of snakes there, particularly puff adders and those kinds of things. And, and uh, one late one afternoon, we were trying to uh, pump water up from a fresh water fountain, and I ran up to go get a two-liter bottle up in the house. And uh, as I was about to step onto the little porch there, I just heard this puffing sound, and I stepped back to find a puff adder that was lying so close to me uh, right against the porch. And so I ran back down to my dad and I said, dad, there is a snake at the house. There is a puff adder at the house. And my dad was like, I don't care about the snake. Bring the two liter bottle. And so I ran back to the house and uh, I told my seven-year-old brother at the time, I put him on a bar stool, you know, for safety. And uh, I gave him a a fishing rod. And I said to him, because our room was right there, the door was right there. And I said to him, if this snake comes up the porch, hit him with the fishing rod. And so anyway, so we were busy until after dark, we came back. You know, the fishing rod was in the bushes and the bar stool was lying on its side and my brother was nowhere to be found. And we had no idea where the snake was. And so now we have to look for the snake. And so uh, there's also no electricity. It was kind of a rustic farm that we had. So we used paraffin lamps. So we think the snake is in the room, but we're not 100% sure. So I run in, I jump on the fridge and uh, I, I just bump something that was under the bed uh, with, this, with this walking stick that I had. And this, we can hear the snake just goes crazy. It's in the room. It's, uh, it's under the bed. And so my dad comes in, he takes a catty and he ties it to the front of a walking stick. That's how we're gonna take out this demonic snake. And, um, and he says, we're gonna slide under the bed on our stomachs. I'm holding the torch, he's got the thing and hopefully we won't get bitten in the face, which was the worst plan in the history of man. 
And I just said to my dad, that's fine, that's fine. But if the snake comes, I'm going, I'm taking the torch with me. Um, and you can battle it out. So he said, okay, let's try another plan. And we pulled the bed forward and my dad walked on it. And we managed to get hold of the snake. And we managed to kill it. And uh, um, unfortunately, there was no peaceful resolution that day, just being true to scripture. But... Um, but uh, so snakes is like the worst nightmare. And this is what happens with Israel. If you haven't heard the story, there is this place in the book of Numbers where, where Israel is complaining against God. God has just brought them out of slavery and they begin to complain. And so as a judgment for sin, this is the Old Testament, these snakes come out, which is like the worst, uh, the worst nightmare of Israel ever. And these people get bitten by these snakes and they go to Moses and they recognize their sinfulness. And they say to Moses in Numbers 21, it says, it says, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord and take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. In this moment, they recognize their own sinfulness. That is such a big part of us being born again is that we recognize that in ourselves, we cannot save ourselves, that there is nothing good that dwells in our flesh, that we can't be good enough for God, that it would only be judgment that we would receive if we remained uh, in our own selves, in our own strength. That's why God had to make a way. And this is the way that he made. They go to Moses, they say, we messed up. We need help. We need you to save us. So Moses prays, Numbers 21 verse eight, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. Bronze in the Bible is a symbol of judgment. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. He would be saved from the judgment of his sin by looking towards the serpent. And so Jesus sits with Nicodemus and he goes, remember that time, the snakes with Moses in Israel? He says, even as that snake was lifted up, so the son of man, the son of God would be raised up on a cross. And anybody that is facing the judgment for their own sinfulness and the brokenness and the death of their own sinfulness can look to it and be healed. Will live. If you didn't know, that's why on the side of an ambulance, they normally have a snake on a pole because it became an international symbol of healing. That God would heal, that God would redeem, that God would bring life. Jesus was like the snake because the snake represents sin. The snake in the garden that brought sin into this world. Now that snake is crucified because Jesus died and dealt with sin once and for all. It was a bronze snake because it was a snake of judgment. So Jesus was judged on the cross for our sins. Incredible picture. Jesus, you still don't get how you're going to get born again. Do you believe and identify with what Jesus did for you on the cross? That's where the life is. Not in, in a five-step plan. 
The life is in what Jesus did for you on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin for us. And everyone who looks at the snake, who, who looks to, in the Bible you'll find these words, I look to the hills, I, I look to Jesus, I look unto Jesus, the author of and the finisher of my faith. To look to means, I've, I've seen this. I, let me tell you a quick story of when I took my boy to the zoo. He was only about two years old and he loves animals. The zoo is like his best place ever. And uh, we're walking along and we're going to the tiger enclosure and he is so excited. He is far ahead of me, walking in front of me. And then at one point they had a tiger outside in another cage and these two tigers start fighting through the fence. I don't know if you've ever heard a tiger fight, but it's an incredible incredibly loud and scary sound and right next to where the cage is there's like an open area with plants if you go to the Joburg Zoo you'll see what I'm talking about and my boy this two-year-old boy so excited about going to the tigers hears tigers roaring looks to the right and it's open bush and he thought this tiger is coming for me it got out of there and it's coming to eat me and in a moment he turns around the first thing he does he turns around and he looks to me but in his eyes, I could see my son saying, Dad, I need you. I need you. Save me from this tiger that is about to eat me. That's what scripture means when it says those who look to the, the, the snake on the pole, those who look to Jesus. It means that in a moment we recognize that we are out of our depth, that our religion won't help us, that nothing that we can do can save us. And we turn around and we look to Jesus. Like my little boy looked at me that day, Dad, save me. That's what it means to be born again. I can't help myself here. I need my father. I need a savior. And so again and again and again and again, what this book is trying to get you to do is to turn your eyes to Jesus, to look to Jesus to believe and trust that he is the father that will save you. So eternal life, and I'm gonna end here this morning, eternal life, it comes from identifying with what Jesus did for us on the cross through faith. It comes through understanding and believing in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And here's a key difference, and I'm gonna say this before I let the guys go get ready for the baptism. Here's the key difference. We need to understand that Jesus did not just die for us. I'm gonna say what Jesus said, truly, truly. Jesus did not just die for us, but he died as us. The Bible tells us that we were crucified with him. That the very sinful nature that you are walking around with now was on that cross with Jesus. And we have become, by faith, united with his sacrifice. His sacrifice became our sacrifice. His death became our death. His burial became our burial. And his resurrection is our resurrection. And that's what that baptismal water, that baptismal water represents. His death, your death. His burial, your burial. His resurrection, your resurrection.
born again unless you are born of the water and of the spirit. The water represents a cleansing by the blood of Jesus and that spirit, it's the spirit that gives us new life. We are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just to back this up with a verse, my final verse this morning, Romans 6 verse 3. Once I've read this, those of you that want to be baptized, let me maybe say this before I read this verse. If you want to be baptized, um, once I've read this verse, you can go up. There is a, a ladies area and a, and a gents area um, for uh, you to get changed in. Mona and Militia are going to escort you there. They'll look after your stuff while it's in there. We're going to ask for nobody else to go in there uh, until the baptisms are over. We're going to have an awesome morning this morning celebrating what Jesus has done. And I also want to say this, if you came here this morning and you don't have a towel and you don't have clothes and you didn't come ready to be baptized, but right now you identify with Jesus, hey, just jump in, just jump in. It's South Africa, it's summer, it's a little bit cloudy today, but you'll be okay, you'll be okay. Um, just, you can move in obedience to God, you don't have to wait, you don't have to, even if you only put your faith in Jesus this morning for the very first time, you can be baptized today. Uh, there's nothing that prevents you from doing that. So once I read this verse, if you want to go get baptized, uh, go get ready for baptism, you can. But listen to this, Romans 6 verse 3 says, do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus? You see, you baptized into Jesus. It's a declaration of what your faith does as it unites you with Jesus. That's why Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, the good news of what I've done for them, and then baptize those who believe. For those of you that, as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried in him through baptism, into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also walk in newness of life. Love that. Newness is in the heart of God. Behold, I make all things new. Verse five, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man, our old sinful selves was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. You know what's the thing about a slave? A slave doesn't have a choice. A slave cannot run away. A slave cannot be free. When sin tells you to obey its lusts and its desires, if you're not in Christ, you have no option. You have to obey. But the Bible says Jesus caused us to become slaves of righteousness. And I used to not understand that until I understood that I cannot escape my righteousness. I cannot run away from my righteousness. I, I belong to the righteousness. I am the righteousness of God. And that's what Jesus did. If you'd like to get baptized this morning, uh, you can go ahead and get ready right now. Uh, just get up wherever you are. Come on, just move in, in obedience today. Even if you didn't plan on this, even if you, if you didn't put your name down on the list, just go and get ready. Uh, it is gonna be a celebration. It is gonna be a moment we're gonna share together. 
And uh, we are so looking forward to sharing in this moment. With We've got families getting baptized. We've got, we've got uh, people that have just come to know Jesus for the first time. People that have come from every kind of background getting baptized this morning. And it's going to be an absolute uh, delight to be able to do that with them. But this is what we say when we get baptized. We declare, I am in Christ. I am in Christ. His death was the death of my own sin, simple, uh, uh, sinful self. When we get into that b- baptismal water, we represent what's happened in us spiritually when we put our faith in Jesus, is that we step into the, the waters of death. Some people have called it a watery grave. We step into that. When we go under the water, we are buried. The old person, the sinful person is dealt with. And when we, when we come up out of the water, we rise up, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, we, in Christ, we are new creations. The old things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. And my job as a pastor and as somebody who would like to disciple as many people as I can, our jobs as disciples of others is to help people understand just how new they really are just how powerful their new identity is so that we stop thinking about ourselves according to the old sinful man, but we start seeing ourselves according to the righteousness that we have in Christ. Isn't that powerful to understand who you are? It'll change the way you live because it, it speaks to you and it, and it informs your identity. It informs your significance. It informs your worth. You're no longer crushed by, by your circumstances or by the, the critique of others or, or by what happens in life. You no longer find your significance in money or in your career or in your relationships. You're no longer defined by your faults or your imperfections. You are a child of God. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's a new life. And Jesus is going, hey, 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 Nicodemus comes to Jesus. You're, a, you're from God. You're a great teacher. You know nothing unless you're born again. Put your faith in me, not in the religious program. Does that make sense this morning? Come on, Jesus is so good and his word is so true. We're cleansed of all unrighteousness. Because God caused him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just as the last couple of people get ready. Final point. The name Nicodemus. Nicodemus is made up of two words. Nike and Demos. Which means victory and people. Demos is, if you take the, the word democratic, it's Demos Kratos. Kratos means power. The power of the people. So Nike Demos means the victory of the people. How do we have victory over sin? How do we have victory over death? How do we gain victory over circumstances in life? It's by coming to Jesus. It's by coming to Jesus. He is our victory. Jesus says, in this world, you will experience trouble, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And the Bible also says that we are more than overcomers in Christ Jesus. It all comes through him. Can we go ahead and pray this morning and just thank Jesus?